the underpinning of it is mutual flourishing. It, you know, the idea that I can't have the life I want for myself and my children and my neighbors, unless I'm willing to work for that same kind of life for my neighbor, even if my neighbor is someone I'm at odds with. Welcome back, friends. Do you notice the new music? Some of you were really helpful with last week's episode, giving me some comments and feedback on the music. This is another clip that my friend Scott Moore put together to try out for the podcast. So we're trying, we're trying this one today to see how it feels. And you just got to hear just a little bit there from my friend Todd Deathridge, who is on with us today. And we have so many things we're going to talk about. We're going to we're doing something that I haven't done before that I'm excited about. We're going to end the episode by playing a clip from another podcast to help give you a taste of some of the the work that Telos Group is putting out around podcasts that introduce us to peacemakers and the work that they're doing around the world. I think you're going to be really encouraged and you're going to appreciate that. So that's at the end of our episode today. Todd and I talk also about a trip that we're putting together for post-evangelical pastors and leaders. And maybe maybe the trip that you hear about, it resonates with you and you're like, I don't exactly fit into that, but it's interesting to you. And I would encourage you to, to sign up still for information if it seems interesting to you. We'd love to have you if you resonate with it on this trip with us. And I'll just give you the details now. We're going to give you the details again in the episodes, and it's going to be in the show notes as well. It's going to be November 30th through December 7th, 2022. Later in the episode, when we're talking about it. I say it's in 2020, which obviously is incorrect. It's November 30th to December 7th, 2022, later this year. There's going to be a link here in the show notes for where you can sign up that say that you're interested, or you can send an email to info at telosgroup.org. We're going to be doing a trip to the American South. We're gonna spend some time unpacking the story of America. And well, I'll let Todd explain it to you. He's gonna explain it a bit in the episode, but I think I think when I heard him talk about it again, like I just got more and more excited and inspired by it. I'm gonna be on that trip. I hope that you'll come and be a part of it with us. We'd love to have you there. So Todd and I, we're gonna we're gonna talk about all kinds of things. We talk a bit about Israel-Palestine. We talk about peacemaking as discipleship. We talk about how our own missing discipleship has caused harm in vulnerable communities. And then we just get in, we get into all kinds of things. I think there is so much good stuff here. I hope that you appreciate this. So with that, we are going to cue the music again and turn it over to some time with my friend Todd Deathridge. We have privilege of having Todd Deathridge with us today. And Todd, if you have not met him yet, is the executive director and co-founder of the Telos Group. And Todd might be like the person on this podcast who has been highest and closest to power, I think. Is that? No? He's giving me yeah, like a strange look here. Wow, that's quite, that, that's a label, I, I guess. <laughs> well, so Todd, you served as the chief of staff in the Secretary of State's Office of Policy Planning at the State Department with Condoleezza Rice, right? Was it just with Condoleezza Rice? When, yeah, we, yes, the four years that she was Secretary of State. That's right. And the question I don't feel like I've ever asked you, but I'm sure that Luke Norsworthy has probably asked you is, did you get to call her Condi? Did you have nicknames for her? Did Bush have a nickname for you? Like how? 
Well, I, I, I rarely called her anything because there was, there, I, I reported to someone who reported to her, but yeah. I called Madam Secretary when I was in her presence and, and nothing less. I, occasionally Dr. Rice was, was something that was used in the office too, but, but never any more, more familiar than that in the world I was in. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's why, that's why Condi doesn't come on this podcast is because I don't know how to respect <laughs> in the appropriate way. Um, but you spent also two years as a senior advisor in the Office of International Religious Freedom, specializing in religious freedom in the Middle East, which is maybe a part of the story of how you and I originally got connected, because out of that, you ended up birthing an organization called Telos that I want you to like share a little bit of the story of that in a little bit. But I thought maybe I would start with the way you and I originally connected was a few years ago, the embassy in Israel was moved to Jerusalem and it was a really big deal. And I read that and was like, gosh, I don't understand why this is this big deal. I don't understand that. And I reached out to a mutual friend of ours who I knew had had some experience in Israel, Palestine and was like, who can you connect me to, to help me understand this? And you and I had a phone call and I, I ended up on a trip with Telos in Israel, Palestine as a result of that. But so, like, how did you start to get involved in the space of what's happening in the Middle East and particularly in Israel-Palestine? Well, I first got involved when I was yeah doing this work on religious freedom in the Middle East and human rights. And I was traveling in different parts of the Middle East trying to understand the, the, the situation for human rights activists and communities there. This is after 9-11 and we're trying to kind of look at what are, you know, what, what's going on in the Middle East that is, that is a part of the dynamic that's sort of taking place here. And in doing that, I kept finding people who were working on these human rights causes and religious freedom causes in their own context, in their own country. But they also, because they had somebody from the U.S. government with them, they wanted to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and our role in that. And that was, was I wasn't expecting that. And after some time, though, I realized I needed to get smarter on that and really, um, and, and, you know, I had, I had sort of my own ideas about that, my own information about it, my own experience working on Capitol Hill with that as a, as a foreign policy challenge, but really one that functions a lot like a domestic political issue in the United States. And so wanting to actually get smarter on that, and that's what led me to, to really begin to, to try to learn and meet with experts in our State Department, but my colleagues there, but also at the Defense Department and the intelligence community, meeting with Palestinians and Israelis when they were visiting Washington as a part of official trips and delegations, and ultimately, you know, going there myself eventually to try to learn more from the people there and the reality there. Yeah. I mean, so you're like actually in it, actually learning the real, you're not reading news stories. You're not just kind of distant, even like for me growing up, in the church, I would hear pastors talk about Israel and there were, there were opinions that were being formed through those sorts of things. Like, but you are actually like first person in the reality of the, with decision makers, with people that are actually like in the midst of the work there. And the background on that though, is that I had your experience. I mean, I grew up as a Christian in America and in a, a certain kind of American Christianity that, that did talk about both biblical Israel primarily through Bible stories and, you know, that sort of thing but also about modern Israel as a part of sort of in some way, sort of God's unfolding plan and purposes and and prophecies and that sort of thing. So, so that's all in there too. And then you add the political dimension 
that happened when I got involved in, in Republican politics on Capitol Hill and, and how supporting Israel is very much a, a litmus test, you know, in, in that way. But then ultimately, finally kind of immersing a little bit into that, to the reality of Israelis and Palestinians in their own context, meeting with people uh, on, on sort of from a multitude of perspectives on the ground there and getting to know both, both experts, you know, and leaders, but also just uh, ordinary people too. And, and that creates a whole new level of complexity to a, to a situation that I thought was really neat and clean in black and white for many years. Hmm. So, so you're having these experiences at the State Department. At some point, you have to leave because administration is changing. And one of the things like that you actually put a face on for me is the reality that when somebody else gets voted in, there is a whole lot of people that have to figure out what they're doing next. And this new organization, Telos Group, gets formed in that period of time. Like what, what sort of was behind what the Telos Group was being formed to do and what you all were hoping for coming out of it? Well, the idea for what we now call Telos comes from, from my co-founder, Greg Khalil. So Greg is an American from San Diego. His father was a Palestinian Christian who'd immigrated to the U.S. from, from Bethlehem before Greg was born. And his parents were academics in California. Greg was a music major at UCLA and then went up to Yale Law School and had gotten involved as a part of a, a British NGO in, in Ramallah that was offering advice and support to the Palestinian negotiators in the peace talks with Israel. And so in that role, I had met him when I was in the State Department. He was one of the folks that I'd met with. And he had came, come back to the U.S. toward my time as my time in the Bush administration was ending, he was back in the U.S. and he spent about a year working on this idea of, of creating some kind of educational nonprofit in the U.S. that would help educate Americans about that conflict in ways that help them understand the complexity of it, help them understand also their own role in it as Americans, the role that Americans play, and then help steer them toward doing the kinds of things that would make it more possible for Israelis and Palestinians to solve the conflict. Versus what a lot of a lot of our interventions today are are actually doing things that may sound good, but in in the end they may end up they often end up serving conflict itself. So Greg comes back with this idea, and he's trying to figure out how to do this. And he spent about a year working on this. And then it, as the Bush administration was ending, he was in Washington meeting with some folks to kind of you know sort of bounce this off them. And I was one of those people, and it, and I basically invited myself into the project, which he had not full, formally launched yet. And so we started working together. In the, in the last few weeks, the Bush administration and on January 6, 2009, one of my last days at the State Department, right, as the Obama uh, presidency was about to begin, we launched, we were formally launched and we've been, you know, doing it ever since, about 13 years now. And our, our mission at the time was, was very connected to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and helping Americans understand it and understand their role and support the things that would allow for conflict resolution there and, and to support American interventions that would make solving the conflict more possible for Israelis and Palestinians. It's changed over time, but that's where we started. Yeah. So at some point you all were doing work in Israel-Palestine that you began to realize like had broader implications than beyond, beyond just that region. Like what, what does sort of like the broader work now look like? Well, we kept taking people there and we've been doing that for years now and people would come back and they would say, you know, like you gave me a new way to see this conflict, but you've given me a whole new set of glasses to see the world with. So I come back and I have 
I have all these other challenges I'm seeing here at home and I'm seeing them differently and I'm open to kind of new ways to think about that. And that new set of glasses was all the sort of lens of peacemaking help we both because what we do on our experiences in Israel, Palestine, we introduce them to Israelis and Palestinians from, again, from a variety of perspectives, Jews, Christians, Muslims, and we help them deal with people's different stories and narratives and experiences of this sort of complicated history. But also, we, and, and, and many of these are stories that, that don't in any way reconcile and they can't. And so you can't, you know, sort of hold them all together except in some kind of tension. But, but we also introduce them along the way to a few of the folks doing the work of peacemaking, of coexistence, of justice, of conflict resolution at different levels. And so in doing that, we were also teaching them some of the skills of peacemaking, some of the principles and practices of, of how you do peacemaking and what you build it on. And so they're coming back and now they're seeing sort of seemingly intractable problems here at home, like racial justice in America, for instance. And they're saying, how do I think about that differently? And what can I do differently based on what I've been learning there? And so after some years of that, we began to uh, maybe four or five years ago to explore what would it look like to create an experience here in the U.S. that mirrors what we do in Israel-Palestine that would help us tell a more complete, a more honest American story, one that would allow us to sort of be, be honest about our own history in ways that allowed us to build a different and better future for every, in which everybody flourishes. Yeah. And so, so, so much of our work in Israel-Palestine is predicated on this, what, what we call the slogan we've used for, from the beginning is that we are pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian and pro-peace, which can sound really silly and unserious, or it can sound really threatening, depending on how you want to hear that. But we think it's powerful because we think it's true. We think you can't really be pro-Israeli unless you're pro-Palestinian. You can't really be pro-Palestinian unless you're pro-Israeli. There's two groups of people, nearly equal in number, who live in this small piece of real estate with their own unique histories and deep connections to that same land. And the only way you sort of get out of this mess uh, in which everybody can flourish is to work for something that works for everybody, right? There's not a, there's no good future for one people there unless there's a good future for, for the other. And that it works in both directions. And so that was all about the work. There's no military solution to this conflict. There's there's only a, a, a peaceful one, a diplomatic one, a coexistence one, but there's not there's not a violent solution to it in our view. And so it, that work of pro-Israeli, pro-Palestinian, pro-peace, that, that slogan doesn't really translate into anything we're doing in the U.S., but the underpinning of it, the underpinning of it is mutual flourishing. It, you know, the idea that I can't have the life I want for myself and my children and my neighbors, unless I'm willing to work for that same kind of life for my neighbor, even if my neighbor is someone I'm at odds with. And, and that is, that is to me connecting into that sort of deep moral truth of the universe of, about how we are meant to live together in mutuality. And sort of that takes us back to, you know, to in Christian terms and theology, that takes us back to Genesis one, to Shalom, to this unity and wholeness in the way God made the world with men and women meant to live in right relationship with him, with each other, and with the created natural world in flourishing and justice and peace. And there's a unity and a wholeness into that in which our, which flourishing is, is, is tied to, like, my flourishing is tied to yours. No matter what the relationship is between you and me, our flourishing is, is connected to each other. But the idea is that we'd be in right relationship and that, that we would flourish together in the play, in the land. And, and that's, that's what this sort of whole work of peacemaking is about, about appreciating that 
we can only truly flourish when our neighbors can flourish as well. And, and, and our obligation is not only to work for our own flourishing, but to work to, for the flourishing of our neighbors. Yes. So the experience that you describe of the trip was totally my experience when, when I went with you all. I think it was, it was 2018, October of 2018, I went. And genuinely, I don't just say this because you're in front of me, like maybe the most impactful trip of my life. And you put us in front of multiple narratives that we have to sort of sit with that don't get resolved. And then with that, you put us in front of peacemakers who are there intentionally doing this work of peacemaking that feels beautiful and incredibly inspiring. And like people that like, gosh, I'm sitting in front of this person that I know someday, like books are going to be written about this person and the work that they're doing here. And I'm getting to sit across the table with them. But I went home and the whole time I wasn't just thinking about like, oh, I understand Israel-Palestine and that conflict more. I kept thinking about how it related to my experiences at home. I kept making connections, not only to, for me, not only to um, racial justice work here, but also I had all of these connections that I began making to the Native American experience in the United States that I had never dawned on me that was right in my backyard that like being over there in that experience, all of a sudden started translating over here and then moving into like being in the midst of an incredibly contentious, because in 2018, we're in the midst of a really contentious political season that has only gotten worse since then. And like putting it on that lens, like it, it messed with me in a way where I had to like grapple with all this stuff. And one of the things that I came away with was this idea of peacemaking as a form of discipleship and formation. And I, I don't remember exactly how you said it, so I might say it wrong, but I feel like you said something on our trip that was essentially that peacemaking, like almost like speeds up the formation process or it forces you into it in new and different ways to force you to mature in ways that you wouldn't have to if you weren't a part of that. Do you mind, especially in thinking about like, there's several like pastors and church leaders that, that listen on here, do you mind talking just a little bit about the idea of peacemaking as a form of discipleship formation? What does that, what does that look like? What do we need to recapture there? Well, one of, one of my friends said years ago that she said, I think peacemaking is the most neglected aspect of discipleship within the American church. And that's not all churches because there are definitely there are churches that are very committed to sort of peace. They're, they're known as peace churches, even they're the whole Anabaptist movement, you know, that, that definitely has a theologies around that, that are particular to that, to those denominations. But it is a very neglected part of our discipleship. The things we learn in peacemaking are definitely not nor normative for Christian discipleship experiences. And yet they're very much centered in the way Jesus lived in the world and taught us to live in the world as his followers. And so that's what it means to be a disciple to, to, to allow ourselves to be formed into the likeness of Jesus and allow all these experiences to do that. So I think peacemaking is both, it's neglected, but I think it's actually, there's, an, there's a very strong and, and valid historical, biblical, and and otherwise, you know, other case to be made for why this is, is such an, it should be so much emphasized within Christian discipleship. And I know that like in the evangelical world, which is the tradition that, that you know, we both come out of, there has been for the last 20, 25 years, there's been a real emphasis on issues of justice. And that's a, you know, that's a beautiful thing. And I think we can all be happy about that. But there is also this way in which evangelicals kind of have 
you know, kind of, of they, they invented justice in the nineties. Well, there, you know, there's a church has been doing and caring about justice for a long time. Christians, uh, you know, you take the, we take the scripture seriously, obviously care, you know, you can't, but care about justice, but there is some, there is some way that the work does sort of working for justice or fighting injustice in the world. It's, it can be a very external thing because you've sort of identified who the bad guys are, what the enemy is, and you, you're, you're on the battle lines attacking it every day and you're trying to dismantle, take down whatever. And, and so that, that's, that's, that can all be very legitimate. But if you're not careful, it can also cultivate a real sense of self-righteousness in us. We can feel really good about ourselves, whether or not we're making any difference. We're really out there fighting the bad guys. And we can start to feel, again, sort of very self-important and very self-righteous. And so that's something we always have to, you know, to, to, to be, aware, be wary of as we engage in activism in the world. But peacemaking does differently, I think, is that it really does force us to deal with our own stuff. Like I can't be an agent of peace and reconciliation and healing in my community and in the world and, and, and be completely, you know, a mess all the time. I mean, you, you, I mean, we, we have to, we have to, I can't, I have to be in right relationship to the extent possible. I'd be working on that at every level, like not just, you know, not just sort of the bad guys that are out there, but I mean, I had to be working on this in my home and my family relationships and my, you know, in my friend relationships, my community as I work on these things in the world. And there is a part of peacemaking that is, that is sort of both, it is both contemplative and active when it's done correctly, right? It's, it's both the interior work that we, that we have to do, which, which is really a, a, also a cultivation of, of humility, a spirit of repentance that has to take place. All of that is part of stuff that has to be done in, in an interior way. And that's the same stuff you have to do in an exterior way. So peacemaking is really about often engaging in works of repentance. So if we're going to do this work in America around racial justice, there's a whole big giant component of this or, or, or the, or, or native, the native American experience. There's a whole part of that, that we don't need to be afraid of these, of this part of our story. That's so dark and so difficult and so wrong. We actually, but we, we have to actually be willing to enter into that, learn about that more and then repent of that. And then. Mm bring repair to those situations. We're often afraid of that, you know, that, that desire to, that need that we have to repent, that it somehow sullies the whole project. And in fact, you know, it only makes, it only makes the American experiment and experience stronger and richer and more true, the more we're willing to own our past history and past mistakes. But my point in all that is to say that peacemaking discipleship forces us to embrace these kinds of principles, both internally and in our sort of relationships and in our activism in ways that I think are, that are healthier and that are more formative of the, of what it really means to live as followers of Jesus. In I was thinking as you were sharing all of that, I was thinking about the pastor who has been trying to figure out how to like navigate their church through everything that's going on right now, through the incredible divisiveness around like, You've got pastors who people left their church because they didn't open up soon enough. You have pastors who had people leave their church because they opened up too quickly. You had like, there was no winning in how you reopened in COVID for pastors. You have like extreme fights around vac vaccinations and the way pastors are or are not talking about that. You have stuff around like coming out of January 6th and everything that happened there and how pastors engage your community with that. And I think there's been this real like 
like we don't know what to do here sort of posture and they're trying to like hold things together not to like not because pastors want their church to be big and they're scared of losing people necessarily i think that's like not actually a true motive for a lot of folks i think it's actually like they care about their folks and they care about like what's being torn apart so all that to say like i would be curious how a pastor in that situation has come to you and like seeing peacemaking as discipleship is a really important part of like helping them think that through what would you be encouraging them with what would you be asking them to read do think about like where would you point them well i mean you know because of my work i mean tell us works with a variety of communities but about two-thirds of our work are with christians and christian leaders and and most of my work is with the christian community because my my deepest desire in this work is to is to create conversations within the within the church that allow that allow sort of the church to become more of the reconciling community it's meant to be in the world. And so I, so I spent a lot of time with pastors and sort of outside of healthcare workers, I don't know anybody who's paid a higher price or been more beleaguered in the last couple, two to five years than, than, than clergy, than pastors. And I mean, I, I know so many pastors that, you know, everything is gone from them in terms of the, the joy of, of getting up and doing their jobs every day. I know many who've actually left their churches and I know others that would leave if they had had a better opportunity in front of them. And that's, that sounds crash to say, but you know, it is the reality. It is very hard to pastor right now. And it's hard for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the way in which I think what is what I'm seeing take place here is the way in which our identities have so shifted in ways that our political ideologies have become central to who, who we think we are in the world. And, and in some ways, I don't know if there's, a, you know, sort of a, this, the same root in these two words, but I think our ideologies have become idolatries and they have a lot of the characteristics of sort of biblical idolatry and the, and the claims they make on us. I've seen some, some really, you know, interesting poll numbers that like a generation ago, Parents would, if they were asked, you know, would you be concerned if your child married someone of a different religion? And that was kind of a, that was, that was a big marker for people and an area of concern. Today, there's some, I've seen some polling data that show that the, one of the biggest concerns parents have is if their child marries someone of a different political background, like if that, you know, that different political tribe. And I think it's just one little tiny way to expose how much our identities are connected to our politics. And so I know people are sorting themselves geographically based on political identity right now. People are moving from red states to blue states and blue states to red states because they don't want to live around people who are, you know, have uh, political, different political ideologies. And, but people's churches are separating in these ways and people are leaving churches that are too political or not political enough, or they're trying to go to places where they feel more like everybody there is like them in their, in terms of their politics. And so that, that's the context in which the, the pastors are having to do their work right now. And so somehow finding ways to, I mean, I think that's what, the only thing that can explain the sort of existential threat that people feel around their politics these days and why it's, everything is so zero sum. And this idea of working, you know, cooperatively or being in, in, in civil relationship even with people who are different from us politically is such a scary thing for people. And it's, it, you know, and it, it, 
So that's the that's the context which, which pastors are operating in, and that's really hard to undo. But I think figuring out, like starting to identify what is really at the root of this, trying to get to asking those questions in their congregations of the of, of their people, and trying to get at what is what is the fear underneath all this? Because that's often what is motivating some of this is some kind of some sense of existential fear. Trying to get to that is is one way to start, and then figure out what is what are the what are the idols that are that are attracting people. And then what are the ways that we've been misdiscipled? What are the what are the bad theologies that we've passed along? What are the ways that we in the church have taught people to be such binary thinkers, such it's this or this, and there's no gray in between? What are the ways that, that the theologies we brought to bear that have perpetuated, you know, harm toward vulnerable people, whether it's toward, you know, black and brown people in our own country, whether it's toward you know, Palestinians who live in, in Israel, and many Christians have a theology of Israel that has sort of has baptized the, the contemporary state of Israel in ways that make no space for Palestinians to even be in the land, uh, that kind of, kind of Christian Zionism. So what are these theologies that have been weaponized against vulnerable people hmm. at home and abroad to kind of identifying those and then figuring out ways to begin to create conversation around them? But, but, but even a part of that also helping to teach our people to do some of the things that peacemakers know to do, which is sort of learning to listen, to understand, not just listen to debate or listen to, you know, but the our, you know, one of the, the first principles or one of the first practices of peacemaking in our, we it tell us we have these principles and practices of peacemaking, find them on our website. Uh, the first practice of peacemaking is to listen, to understand. So. We learn to listen to people who we disagree with, not so that we can debate them, not so that we can, you know, interrupt them and tell them why they're wrong, but but just to understand how somebody else made in the image of God could come to such a different conclusion about something that we think is really important and they do too. And how do we, you know, and be curious about that, cultivating of some sense of curiosity and diminishing the fear that comes from, you know, from this idea that if I listen to someone who I think is wrong and don't tell them why they're wrong, somehow I've, you know, I've made some you know, some cosmic error. And so helping people just to embrace some of those principles, this is hard stuff. I don't want to diminish it. It's, it's hard stuff to teach people. It's hard stuff to get people to, to sort of go on the journey for. But I, I think if you can give people experiences where they have, to, where they're put in situations where they have to encounter other people's stories who are different from them, experiential learning is always better than just somebody being taught, you know, a set of facts. What, what pastors know and what all good teachers know is that you never argue somebody else into a new position. If you're trying to help people ex- ex- expand their horizons a little bit and help them understand something different, you're not going to just give them facts and have them, you know, and, and argue into them to a new place. But people do change their minds. They do, they do transform. That's the, that's the first principle of peacemaking that we believe is that, that transformation happens, that change is possible. And we do change, but we change more because we have because of a story, because of a human c- connection, a human interaction. And so giving people the stories they need, better stories about that are more true to how the world really is and its complexity, that we're all you know, made in the image of God and we're all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And so in the middle of that, we do some really beautiful things and some really awful and selfish things and, and understanding that about the human condition, telling stories that are true to that, telling stories that are complicated, I mean, this is how and Jesus had access to all the truth of the universe if we if he is who we believe he was and is. And yet he didn't give theological long theological discourses. He told a lot of stories. Hmm. 
and he and he gave experiences to people that illustrated more things that, that that that's what opened people up and that's what taught them so providing experiences for your people providing different kinds of stories for your people i think that is an important way to begin to open people up to a journey that allows them to then be open to different ways of thinking about the world they're more connected to to the way jesus i think calls us to live in the world that's so good and that's a that's a great segue into the the two things that we wanted to move towards to like wrap up our time here and we're gonna we're gonna have a little bit shorter interview than i normally do because we're going to play a part of the tell us podcast here in just a little bit but before we do that so I've, i've been building this community that many of the folks who are listening are part of 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 pastors that in some sort of way identify as post-evangelical and leaders in the church space that no longer feel like they fit in the evangelical space and kind of in this in-between space. Like, I don't know where I fit. And you and I started having conversations about like, what would it look like to bring a group of these pastors and leaders on, on a telos trip to have some of that experiential learning together where both like we could spend time together, but also like we could be challenged together as well. We could, hear some narratives, be pushed into some spaces that would force us to confront some things about ourselves, about our communities. And so um, so we've put together a trip with Telos where we're going to be doing, you call it the the Restory US trip, is that right? And so we're going to go on a trip to the South to get a honest perspective of the American story. It's going to be November 30th is when we're going to start November 30th to December 7th, 2020. And Folks, you're listening. I would love, I'd love for you to consider being a part of it. Todd, do you mind sharing a little bit about like what does what does that trip look like? Yeah, it's it, we we call this an American pilgrimage. It's uh, our the program is called Restory Us or Restory US, and it's a way to it's our way to give ex, sort of again experiential learning that you need to understand and walk into a more honest, complete American story. So this is this is not an attempt to say that you know. Everything America has ever been and done has been is, is bad, and it's not an attempt to say America is this divine project above reproach. It's it's something that's completely in somewhere in the middle of all, of all of that, and it's it's an honest attempt to say that this nation was founded both in it with some really lofty and noble ideals about the human condition, about about the dignity of mankind, and so forth. And at the same time, it was, we built into the very same system, even to our founding documents, the opposite of those things, the contradiction of those things. And so, uh, you know, we, we, the people, uh, actually only meant we, the white male Anglo-Saxon property owners, right. In, in the original encapsulation and, 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 and black Americans were, were, considered only three-fifths a person and slavery was codified into the constitution itself. And and it, we're you know we're trying to kind of hold in tension that the, all of these things about America, but really delve into the the story of how um the native population will start with the Native American story a little bit and then move into the story both of, of enslaved people and then all the way through into contemporary issues around uh, criminal justice and mass incarceration and things like that. And along the way, we will also take time to celebrate parts of our own story and we'll, we'll celebrate the, the lives of people who lived 
with great challenges and with great injustice and yet whose humanity and dignity continue to push through and shine through. So one of my favorite things that we do on these trips is that we go to a place in New Orleans called Congo Square, which is this this public park today, but historically going back for uh, all the years of its history in New or- of the history of New Orleans, it was a place in the beginning where where both enslaved African Americans and freed blacks who lived in New Orleans could gather on Sunday, and under the under the French laws of the day, um, uh, even enslaved people were required to be uh, given the day off on Sunday, and so they gather there, and and even in these dire conditions of great injustice. They would gather and they would keep, they kept alive many of their traditions, their culture, their music. And so, so much took place in this sort of incubator of, of Congo Square that, that still reverberates in our country today. Every unique genre of, of music in the American tradition largely arises out of the, with these deep influences from African-American experience. And a lot of that are the things that kind of got incubated and kept alive in places like Congo Square. And so seeing that, 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 that humanity that just keeps coming through at, even in spite of all the injustices is a really beautiful part of the story. But we engage the, the really difficult parts of our story too. We don't leave any of that, you know, undone. We, we really try to take all of that into and then figuring out what is ours to do about these things and how to not do this in a spirit of guilt and shame, but in a, in a spirit of responsibility and then, and then as agents of repair. How do, we, how do we build a better future in which everybody can flourish? When we take all, we're not trapped in this past, which we seem to be in America. We, you know, we, steep, we keep having these conversations about racial justice and we can't seem to never be able to fully get out of them. How do we not just stay trapped in that? How do we finally be honest about that and own that in ways that allow us to build a different kind of future in which all can flourish, in which nobody gets left behind, in which you know, in, in which where there's mutual flourishing? That's the reality of, of that's that's the work that we're trying to do there. And so we'd love to have folks come with us on that journey. It's an incredibly powerful experience. I just got back from leading a trip last month. First time we've done one since the pandemic, and uh, it was just really, really such a moving and powerful trip for all of us. I, I genuinely can't wait, and you sharing about it just now like makes me really excited for it. I, I hope that you'll consider coming with us. So, so, like, what, what should people do if they're interested? What's the best way for them to find out information? Is it contact well, me? Is it contact you? The, I mean, they can definitely contact us here at Telos. So you can contact. If you just do the info at telosgroup.org email, that will that will get to all the folks here who need to to register your interest in that. So yeah, just please let us know. We 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 really welcome. I mean, I'm so excited to do this trip with you, and I'd love for some of your listeners to join us on that too. Yeah, I think it'll be so fun. It would be really really great to have several of you come with us to get to be together in person, to get to be challenged, and to even like bring back that experience to your community. The, the place where we want to end up here is that you all have put together a great podcast that started coming out. It started coming out during the pandemic, right? That's uh, right. Yeah. And my experience with your podcast is like the experience of going on a trip in some ways without going on a trip where you are exposing narratives of people, of peacemakers, and and we're hearing their story and we're having to sort of like sit with their story and their experience. And so... I wanted to point people 
to your podcast. So we're going to play, we're going to, we're going to play a bit of a clip of one in just a moment here. But before we get to that, is there anything that would be helpful for us to know about sort of how the podcast came about? Well, we just, we, we, we have over the years of doing this, we've had the real privilege of meeting, as you said earlier, some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet in the world. And many of them are in Israel and Palestine. Some of them are in places like South Africa, where we have a new program. Some of them are in other parts of the world. So we, we have had access to and gotten to know some amazing peacemakers uh, and some people doing um, really incredible work in difficult circumstances. And we really want more and more people to have access to those stories because we think that the world needs better and truer stories right now. There's a lot of, lot of false information out there. And there are a lot of stories that get told that are not connected to that idea of a moral universe in which we're trying to work out something in which we, which our mutual, you know, which our flourishing is connected uh, to each other. And so we wanted to tell the stories of the people that are doing that and doing it often in, in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And so we just invited some of our friends. Can you, can we have a conversation and share that with the world? And we've been super super excited about how this is turning out. So we did season one at the beginning, uh, last year, uh, in 2020 during the pandemic. And we are just now rolling out season two. We're about midway through that. And these are great people, fascinating stories. And I think it's well-produced. So we're really excited about it. Thank and really grateful that you'd be willing to, to share it on your podcast to do. To yeah, do. I'm excited. This is the first time I'm getting to do this a little, like, I see the big boys do this. And so this was fun to get to, for you all to get to hear a portion of one of the Telos Undaunted podcasts that, that you can find. I hope that you'll subscribe to it, listen to more of their stories, but I wanted to give you a bit of a taste of it. So before we play a portion of that podcast, Todd, where can folks find you, find Telos? Where where should people be paying attention to that want more info, want to know? Just pay attention to what the work you're doing. Yeah, well, you can, our website's telosgroup.org. So check us out there. You can, you'll have access to our principles and practices of peacemaking. You can find on the website, our podcasts are there. We have two podcast channels. The Undaunted is the Stories of Radical Peacemakers. We also have a podcast called The Weekly Check-In in which our team has conversation around a couple of items in the news. And we try to analyze current stories and events and uh, happenings from through the lens of what it, what how, how peacemakers would want to think about these things. We used to try to pick a story from the Middle East and something from our own domestic situation, but it, it varies. And we have a lot of fun on that. So I'd invite you to check that out. We also have a, a, a newsletter that comes out every other week that also gives some analysis of uh, current events and other principles and practices of peacemaking and some other things that are unique to Christian audiences. So I'd, I'd encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter and all the, and Facebook and all those sorts of things too. You can follow me in all those places too. But Tells is trying to be more active in our in our social media communications too, especially around around these principles and practices of peacemaking. And this whole second season of Undaunted is meant to highlight these different principles and practices. So I, sh I mean, I'll just step back really quickly and say, during the pandemic, one of the things we did, we we knew we had access to these amazing people. We'd learned so much from them for so many years of doing this work. And so we tried to distill these learnings into six principles and six practices of peacemaking. And so the second season of Undaunted is very much themed around every story is meant to illustrate one or more of those principles and practices. So it's a way to sort of show what those things look like lived out. Love it. Love it. Todd, honestly, it's such a gift. I could, I could talk to you for another two hours about this stuff. I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. 
Well, friends, Todd is pretty amazing, isn't he? There, there was so much stuff there. Like, for instance, those of you who are leading churches, I know that there was some really helpful thoughts about the way in which we're able to move people forward, as well as like what it looks like for us to approach uh, discipleship more robustly in the way that we're engaging in our church life. There were some really helpful thoughts about the way that we're engaging in work in the world in general today, the way that we uh, care about our neighbors and the flourishing of our neighbors, and particularly even those who we don't necessarily agree with. So, so many things here with Todd, which is why like, I had thought my intention had been, we'll do like a 15 or 20 minute interview, and then we'll play the podcast. And obviously the interview went a lot longer than that, and I could have kept going with Todd. But now I want to move into, like I had mentioned, we're going to have a portion of one of the Telos podcast episodes from Undaunted Play. This is an episode with Renee August. Renee August is an Anglican priest and peacemaker in South Africa. She shares in this clip about the way that her theology challenges her to care about issues of justice and about the, the deconstruction, reconstruction that she went through in her theology's relationship to apartheid. And so we're going to get to hear just a little clip of that. I'd encourage you, I'm putting a link in the show notes to a Tell Us podcast, and I'd encourage you to subscribe to check out other episodes, but just want to give you a little bit of a taste of the work that they're doing there and to get to hear a little bit of a story from a peacemaker. So here is a portion of the episode with Renee August from the Telos Undaunted podcast. I think it was my studies of the Old Testament, really, of the Hebrew scriptures that brought me to a place of asking deeper questions. There was a document called the Kairos document. What the Kairos document did for me and for many, 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 not just for me, but within my faith context, having grown up in this Christian family and, you know, faith being a very important part of our lives. What the Kairos document did was it named, firstly named apartheid as a heresy because it was a theology before it was a political system. And it framed the work of loving one's neighbor as oneself. That most important commandment that Jesus talks about, loving God and loving neighbor as a political act. That the moment I begin to love my neighbor, I care about where my neighbor lives. I care about how my neighbor's educated and where. I care about the access to food. I care about the roads that they travel on. I care about the transport that they have to take. And before I know it, I'm involved in politics, the polis, how we will live together, how we will share power, how we will share resources. There was this dichotomy. I think that the engineering of apartheid was also to draw a large dichotomy between what was political and what was spiritual. And what the Kairos document did was brought those two things together in the naming of theology in three categories. It was looking at state theology. So this is, you know, what the state says or the government says about who Jesus is. Then church theology. This is what the church says about being a disciple. And then there was prophetic theology. And the prophetic theology, I mean, Walter Brueggemann talks about prophetic imagination, the prophetic consciousness that is different to the royal consciousness. 
And the prophetic consciousness is about a few things. One is social location, the other is economic, the other is geographic or spatial, and then religious and political. And so when I think about the person and life of Jesus, Jesus comes incarnate, embodied in skin that is Palestinian, brown, located in Bethlehem, contested land, in a family that is poor, in a political system that makes him a hated race, not preferential at all, within a religious, at that time, Jewish system tied up with the empire. I mean, the high priest was chosen by Caesar, appointed by Caesar. <laughs> what on earth is that? And so Jesus' baptism, if we think of Mark's gospel, doesn't take place in the temple. It takes place in a filthy river with the son of a priest who is not preaching in the temple, but baptizing for repentance. And that's where Jesus goes. And so we already see in this sort of introduction of this person of Jesus, there's, there's something that's being disrupted in the narrative of the dominant culture. And Jesus is not buying into that dominant narrative. Jesus is disrupting that dominant narrative. If we think of Matthew's gospel, the way Matthew introduces Jesus, I mean, you look at the genealogy, what on earth is Rahab doing there? A Canaanite prostitute, hello? Canaanite and prostitute in the genealogy. Jesus the Messiah. There's Ruth, a Moabite woman. Like, no, these people don't belong in the Jewish lineage of Jesus. But there they are. And so it, it is meant to cause a disruption. It is meant to ask you a question. Why? Why does God bother to include Canaanites and Moabites? Don't you know how important the story is? Yes, I do. That's why their names are there. Because the story is bigger than the story of the dominant culture. That for me is the, the paying attention to what is already in scripture, but reading it through the lens of people who are from the global majority. People always talk about black people as on the margins. I'm like, can I say bullshit on this podcast? Yeah, that's bullshit. Have you seen how many black people there are in the world? Have you seen how big Africa is compared to North America? Have you seen how big Africa is compared to Europe? I mean, who the hell wants to call an Asian a minority? Have you been to Asia? Obviously not. We need to tell the truth, really. And that helps us grow up. The thing I noticed over and over again in this work of exploring what is different in the Kairos document is, is this invitation to call bullshit on church theology and state theology and say yes to prophetic theology because that is consistent with the life and person of who Jesus is, who I claim to follow. And so that requires me to relocate myself not only geographically but theologically it requires me to relocate myself within my own dominant narratives and, and reframe the stories that have been told to me and allow different perspectives to shape so that my biases are exposed, the biases that I bring to my sacred text. And then there's this opportunity to have other things revealed to me as I do that. It's so profound seeing, speaking, engaging truth so that we might grow without any relationship request for the truth, even if the truth isn't something that we can easily pin down. Growth is impossible. And listening to you, there were two truths that I, I'd like to pull out for 
our listeners because people may not be aware. You said first that before apartheid was a policy, it was a theology. And so before it was a political movement, it was a theological movement. And second, we were just talking a lot about the Kairos document, which was a theological and a political document. It's innovation fusing those two things. But I think a lot of people don't know that the history of the anti-apartheid movement, so much of it began in the church rejecting the theology that kept people in not just theological and virtual cages and psychological cages, but actual cages called townships like the one that you grew up in. Renee, I'm struck by your framing of apartheid as a spirituality or a form of spirituality. What spiritualities do you see today that are behind so much of the polarization, dehumanization and oppression of people? David, I think that's the question really that I I sit with over and over again. I think to to respond, Greg, to you, this whole idea that apartheid was a theology sort of went and extracted chapters and verses from Exodus, giving a certain group of people the right to assume a character in the story and giving them entitlements to land. Very significant. The Hebrew people, it says in the scriptures, they were enslaved. They were oppressed. And then, and then, you know, a whole bunch of things. But then suddenly white people go, oh, oh, that, that must be us. <laughs> no, sunshine, that is not you. I, I don't know how to break it to you. But if your ancestors, ancestors have not been enslaved, then you should take a seat. And you should try and think of the story a little differently to what you do right now. So, I mean, I... <sighs> There's so much mess in that, that that sort of brings me to a little bit of what David is saying. You're asking about the spiritualities, and I would say over and over and over again, I find these spiritualities that are disembodied are the ones that create the most trouble. Because when my spirituality is disembodied, then I can dehumanize you, because then it has nothing to do with Jesus. And that, for me, is sort of the, the crux of the matter. Really, It makes it possible for us to worship Jesus without needing to follow him. We just go, oh, you died for my sin. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I love you. I love you. Jesus, not once, not once in the entire body of scripture does Jesus say, come, worship me. Not once. Not once. I mean, Matthew 28, the disciples are there gathered after his resurrection. He's ascending. I mean... I don't know what that looked like, but hovering Jesus off the ground, like, blow me away. Holy cow, something amazing is happening here. And then Matthew writes, and there they worshipped him and some doubted. <laughs> you you what? You you doubting right now? And, and not even there does Jesus say, come worship me. In that moment, Jesus says, go, go. Go and be my body now. And so then when we go, oh, the body of Jesus was broken for me, the Eucharist then says that that we get to not only partake in that, but become that. We say yes to being broken because we are the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is broken for you, for everyone. And we say yes to being poured out. Spirituality for me that is embodied needs to include 
the reality that our spirituality must lead us to death, to the dying of ourselves, for the benefit of... I'm not saying more of more of you and less of me, Lord. <laughs> it's like, do that with your money and then you can pray that. There's this act, this very bodily, living act of Jesus, of self-sacrifice, of self-surrender, of relinquishing power. You know, Paul is like, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, to use to his advantage, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, taking on the nature of one who is enslaved. Like anyone here volunteering to be enslaved? That's the nature Jesus takes on. And then comes and serves and gives his life. So people are like, oh, but I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel called. No, no one feels called to die. No one. But we are commanded to. This is not selective obedience about when it's convenient to give up power or to relinquish rights or to share what we have. This is literally the way of Jesus. And, and to walk in the way of Jesus requires us to embody a spirituality that chooses the other and that chooses the relinquishing of the power that I do have. And, and I say that and at the same time it kind of gets stuck in my throat because it's really hard for me to give power away, even when I want to, because the systems that give me power are not easily undone. The power I have is systemic power. It's not about the individual. Like I can give away all my money today. Next month I will have things. And I probably won't go hungry. There's a good chance I won't go hungry, even if I gave away everything I own. So Kairos undid the theology. 1994, Mandela's elected, undo the law. But now, you know, supposedly there's equality in South Africa, but a word you mentioned, not real equity. So those townships still exist where your family was pushed, you don't have ownership. And so I, I, I think it would be really interesting to hear from you, how, how now are South Africans imagining remedying these very real structural injustices that are not just historic, they're present today, 26 years after the fall of apartheid. Many black and colored South Africans are doing worse than they were before in some sense. I would start by saying there's not a lot of people imagining what that can look like. I say in the Eucharist, the Eucharistic prayer, we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And I invite people and I say in the language of your dreams, let us pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And I mean, I've had some pushback from people. They're like, oh, it's not taught. It's, you know, it doesn't say that in the Bible. Why are you always language of our dreams nonsense? And Part of the colonial project was to, in every, in every instance with the British, when they colonized people, they would ban them from speaking their mother tongue. You can trace that anywhere. This was their thinking. If we can stop you from speaking your mother tongue, we will stop you from dreaming. And so how do we pray this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples? How do we pray the dream of God when we ourselves have no dreams? Or we don't, we don't have the capacity to dream. Or the capacity we have to dream is for our own survival, not our own flourishing. So I would say there aren't, there aren't many people who are living in that place of imagination. But then there are some who are, who are there. And when we talk about this conversation, I always say we can't, we can't have this conversation unless we talk about reparation. 
and then you just see everybody go, whoa, let's not talk about reparation. A friend of mine was interviewing me for something and she said, well, when you say reparation, could you give me a theological basis for reparation? So this is just a warning, you have to edit this out and this David might make you not like me, but I'm just like, f*** you. What do you mean you need a theology for reparation? There is no need for a theology on reparation because scripture is clear. Thou shalt not steal. Whether you create a law to be able to steal or whether you just come and steal. I mean, when you come with weapons to take my family's home and push us out and force us to live in another area, and you take ownership of that home, like that's stealing. And Greg, if you steal my wallet today and then tell me five years later, hey, about that wallet, I still have it. Um, it's empty now. I'm willing to, you know, maybe negotiate with you about giving it back to you. But can you give me a theology for why I should give it back? Like there's a problem there. There's a serious problem there. And so any conversation about reimagining our future has to include a conversation about reparation, not only because reparation is needed, but because you cannot become human yourself. You cannot be transformed. You cannot have an authentic embodied spirituality unless you participate in reparation, because that will humanize you. You see, if you steal my wallet today and then you return it tomorrow, it doesn't make you a saint. It means you've become human again. At the same time as the need for the conversation of reparation, there is a need to not need reparation because my humanity is not dependent on your actions. If who I am is waiting for you to become who you are, then you still control me and you still control the narrative and you still have my power. And I call bullshit on that too. You don't get to decide what will define me you don't create the limitations, you don't create the context, you don't even create the resources for my flourishing. And so that brings me to sort of the, the undergirding of our spirituality, is that we need a narrative that is bigger than now and a narrative that